0: hello welcome to the dismantling injustice podcast where we offer fresh perspectives on the criminal legal system immigration racial equity and other issues affecting your community on this podcast you'll hear stories from movement leaders and those directly impacted get deep dives into issues that aren't being talked about in the news and hear some light banter along the way i'm carl hammond lipscomb i'm here with my comrade Saleh Israel, who's also the producer of this podcast, and we are your hosts. If you haven't already, I encourage you to click the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using to listen to us so you can get updates on new podcast episodes. So today, on one of our first episodes, um, way back in February, um, we discussed the upcoming Manhattan District Attorney's race and the importance of chief prosecutor races generally. We promised you an update as the race progresses, and that's what we're doing today. Um, I want to welcome back our colleague, Zoe Adele, um, Brooklyn Community Bail Fund's Criminal Legal Advocacy Manager. Hey, Zoe. Hey. Hey, so first, just to refresh our memories, can you remind us um, of the prosecutor races happening this cycle? Um, Which offices are up for election or re-election? And then, just more generally, what does a district attorney do, and why are DA races so important?
1: Sure. So, this cycle, um, we have a primary election coming up on June 22nd. Um, And in New York City, there are two district attorneys who are up for, um, who their positions are are up for, for election. There's the Brooklyn DA. Um, Eric Gonzalez and the Manhattan D.A. is um, currently styed Um for the Brooklyn D.A., there's no one currently running um, against Eric Gonzalez, so he's running unopposed. Um, and in the Manhattan D.A. race, it's a pretty crowded field that we have now. Um, there are nine people running, eight people, um, eight candidates running, in the Democratic primary, um, and uh, one person running um, Republican. Um, and the, the current DA, Vance, is not is not running for re-election. Um, so whoever the next DA is, it will be someone different from who has been sitting in that position for the past um, few years. Um, so just a little bit about what the district attorney does. Um, they are, they're the, the top prosecutor in the county. They are basically the top law enforcement official. Um, they, they decide whether to prosecute people, um, after an arrest. So after someone's arrested, their case goes to the DA's office and. That's where, you know, all the all the big decisions happen. Um, I think it's important to note that the DA as an individual holds so much power um, to set the policies and practices for their office, um, unlike, I think, like lengthy legislative processes um, to pass laws. DAs, you know, come in with with their their plan and their priorities for their office and implement that. Um, so, you know, they decide whether to prosecute people. If they do decide to prosecute someone, they decide what charges to bring. Um, they decide whether or not they want to permit a plea deal, If whether they request sale. Um, and what we've seen um, from our court-watching program, Court Watch NYC, um, and from the DA's own data, is that prosecutors' requests, um, whether that's you know requesting bail um, or sentences and things like that, really do impact um, the outcome? So although you know the judge makes the ultimate decision, um, what the prosecutors request really does um, does does weigh on that, on that outcome quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Um, And they also have, you know, a bunch of other, um, other, other powers like recommending, you know, sentences, also reviewing convictions after, after the fact. Um, And so, you know, there are a lot of different touch points along the way um, that we've, we really see that that the DA's office um, and DA's offices have have a lot to do and are really a driving force behind mass incarceration um, in New York City and you know in other in other cities across the across the country. So I think that's why, um, especially in Manhattan, um, where you know. It's like a third of the people in New York City jails come from, um, you know, cases that are prosecuted in Manhattan. Um, this this one position as DA impacts thousands of of mostly Black and Brown people in the city, um, and you know, I think it's important to to really pay attention to. Um, to who's going to be taking up the helm at the Manhattan DA's office because um, what policies and practices they, they implement in their office, you know, really has um, significant implications for who's targeted and criminalized um, in the city. And I think we'll set the tone for prosecutors, potentially like all across the country too.
0: Yeah, thanks, Zoe. What strikes me, and I'm thinking, I'm re- thinking about this as you speak, is that the DA is really like amongst law enforcement officers, especially on the local level, they're the office that really does touch every aspect of the criminal legal system, um, to the point where a district attorney's priorities really help inform how police officers carry out their jobs on the front end. Um, how judges, um, you know, judge's decision making um, in the middle, and then in the back end, they, you know, their decisions impact who goes through the criminal legal system, who goes through prisons, who's incarcerated. So, you know, ultimately, they impact um, the correction system and even who gets parole and the out- outcomes on the far back end when someone is being released. And so a district attorney, they, they, they have so many touch points in the criminal legal system that it's hard, to, it's hard to understate the importance of this role.
1: Yeah, and I mean, also even how the criminal legal system intersects with the immigration system mm-hmm. and, ha- and whether, you know, DAs will or will not cooperate with ICE. And, yeah. you know handing people
0: over. Yeah and even taking it a step further and you know this is like we haven't touched on this in this podcast yet but the DA's office touches the family law system and the housing court system um, and so they just have such you know they just have so much decision making power for an office that's often ignored or flies under the radar um, or with whom we don't see the same level of campaigning and the same scrutiny that we do with other offices, um, like the city council or borough presidents.
1: Yeah, Um, they definitely have been shielded from a lot of that. So hopefully that's something that we can, we're working to change. Yeah. Um, To get, you know, more eyes on that office.
0: Yep. Um, And so, you know, we're not gonna talk about, you know, so. I know that we at BCBF, and you in particular, have done a lot of work um, to educate the public about the Manhattan DA's race, and we're not gonna talk about candidates, like specific candidates um, during this episode, but um, I was wondering, and, you know, last time you were on, we talked about some of our surprises after one of the candidate forums. Um, we talked about some of the candidates' positions. Since then, um, some of the candidates have changed their positions. And I was wondering if you could talk to us a, a, a bit about that. Um, how have the candidates' positions changed in the last few months?
1: Yeah, so I think um, there are a few areas or, or touch points. Because you mentioned that they, they touch on so many different parts of the, the criminal legal system. Um, so there are a few areas, I think, where we've seen more movement. I guess, than, than others. And I think one um, is in the area of, of gang prosecution. Um, I know that I think at least two candidates um, previously said that they would use um, state conspiracy charges um, to prosecute alleged street gangs. Um, and, you know, these conspiracy charges are have been used as a form of of collective punishment um to indict large groups of people based really just on like guilt by association and really used to target um black and brown communities and mostly in in public housing Um, so there are some candidates that said that they would use these conspiracy charges in the past um, and have more recently changed their position to say that they they won't do that. Um, There is also a candidate um, that that previously said that they would continue to use the NYPD's gang database, um, which basically is just a a database that the NYPD has that's not actually based on any facts, but again is really just used to surveil and criminalize Black and Brown um communities and then prosecutors rely on this database as a reason to you know request higher bail um, or higher sentences on cases um so there's a candidate who recently changed their their commitment um, to to discontinue the use of of the NYPD's gang list. Um, I think just a few other that Come to mind um, are you know changes in whether the candidate would um, seek life sentences. So there were you know candidates, a few candidates who said that they will um, stop seeking life sentences or institute sentencing caps so that they won't request more than a certain number of years prison time. Um, and there there was a candidate who previously said that they it was still on the table that they that they would continue to seek life sentences and, and more recently changed their position, um, that they would not seek life sentences except in exceptional quote unquote exceptional circumstances. Um, and I think I mean I could go on for a while about I think issues that that we've seen with um, with exceptions to to policies, um, and I think mm-hmm. this is something that appears in a lot of what the like different candidates and their their positions and um, and policies that they've proposed is you know saying that they will not prosecute certain charges, except, mm-hmm. and then they'll say some you know broad exception that basically like gets them out of um of actually applying that across the board. Um and you know, it's what we've seen with the current Manhattan DA. Um and you know, having all these carve outs that were the exceptions then, you know, become the rule. Um yep. and I think just on the on the point of um um lists of charges are called decline to prosecute lists, which is basically, you know, candidates will lay out a list of specific charges that they will not prosecute. Um there was a candidate that said that they would have a list and then um more recently said that they don't plan on on releasing a list. Um but I think yeah in a bunch of different Areas and these are just the the ones that come to mind. Um, we've definitely seen movement um, and shift in in different positions that that candidates have.
0: Yeah. So speaking of the current Manette NDA, Cy Vance, you recently wrote an op-ed for Gotham's Gazette about Cy Vance's data dashboard. Um, can you talk to to our, to our listeners about the dashboard? What does it show? Um, What doesn't it show? And um, why is it important for DAs to release um, data on charging and recommendations and everything that's covered in the dashboard?
1: Yeah. So um, the current Manhattan DA, Cyband, a a few months ago now, came out with with this data dashboard. And I think with a press release, it said it was like, groundbreaking move towards transparency um and you know the dashboard has different tabs that people can navigate to to look at um arrests arraignments sentences dispositions, and then also um, race ethnicity and um basically just lays out a bunch of different graphs um on, you know, related issues that, that fall under all those categories. Um, so you can see if things like um, what types of charges were were brought at arraignment or um, average bail requested by the DA's office for misdemeanors versus felonies versus violations. Um, you can see what bail was at. Actually ended up getting set um, and you know can also toggle between if you wanted to look at across races any differences um, so that's you know what it what it shows you do have these graphs that um, that are you know given to you um, that you can click through I think. One issue that I had with the dashboard um, on what it doesn't show is, um, you know, all the the underlying data um, that that feeds into all those graphs. So they the DA's office is picking and choosing how they want to present this information to us, and. You know what they put on the y-axis, what they put on the x-axis, how they break information up um, by misdemeanor versus felony, um, and it it makes it really impossible to actually trace from like point A arrest for a case to sentencing for that same case. Um, so you you are missing parts of, or large parts of the, the DA offices, you know, decision-making um, and, and we're really just given, you know, it's like above the surface, what they want mm-hmm. to show us with the information that they have. Um, so we, we are missing, you know, all the raw data, anonymized raw data or underlying data um, where we can, you know, take that and use it ourselves to tell, to tell a story or to learn more, um, right now with, with the dashboards, we really only are getting this picture that the DA's office is painting, um, versus, you know, like giving us the watercolor set and, um, we can do what we, what we want with that and, and learn more, um, And I think, you know, it's important for DA's offices everywhere to release information about what their offices are doing so that we can, you know, start to understand the scope of, of how their office really impacts people. I mean, I think what we were able to get and learn from the dashboard definitely didn't us. I think communities who are impacted know very well all the harm that the DA's office um, inflicts on, on black and brown communities. And people don't, who've experienced it don't need data to, you know, to, to show them that. Um, but I think some level of you know, transparency um, in an office that I think a lot of people don't really know what they do um, on like a large scale, because you know the Manhattan DA's office impacts so many people. Um, so to be able to have you know a, a peek into into what these offices are doing um, is definitely useful. Um, and you know I think releasing this data is really something that is for the people and something that that we can use data as like one. of the story to organize um, and to, you know, pressure DA's offices to shrink their power, reduce prosecution, reduce the number of people um, that they're prosecuting and incarcerating, um, and really use the data as, you know, a tool that that we can use um, to really hold the DA's office's feet to the fire. and and yeah, I mean I think again, data is just, you know, one one piece. I think we it still misses, you know, some of the the stories of like how this office actually impacts people. Um, so using this data in, in tandem with The work that we're doing like with our court watching program and actually observing what the office is doing and and how it impacts people um but i think da's office is releasing their data is is one helpful and important tool um that can be used for organizing um against frankly (laughs) the da's office itself
0: yep So speaking of um, organizing tools, um, BCBF is working on one of those. Um, I know that BCBF um, is pulling together a voter guide for the Minet and DA's race. And um, you are leading on that. And that, you know, what I've liked about voter guides is that they provide us with just like information on candidates' positions, like to give us a baseline for accountability so we can always, you know, if a candidate promises something... In a voter guide, it gives us something in writing that we can go back to a candidate on and ask them why or why not they did or didn't accomplish something. And so, um, you know, very quickly, I was wondering if you could give us a preview of what um, BCBF's voter guide will cover.
1: Sure, yeah. It um, covers a lot. Um, I think we tried to get, you know, a good cross section of a lot of different issues that the office um, touches on. So it covers, um, bail and pretrial trial detention. So whether or not they commit to not requesting bail, um, it covers issues around like the scope, um, and resources of the DA's office itself. So whether they commit to reducing their office's budget, um, covers issues of transparency. So that, the the data we were just talking about, whether or not they commit to releasing um, information Mm -hmm. about what their office is doing in the form of, you know, data um, dashboards and things like that, Um, along with, you know, commitments around immigration and charging and sentencing um, and prosecuting um, substance use and mental health issues. So yeah, definitely um, includes you know a bunch of a bunch of different different pieces of of information about um, the DA's office and you know the different ways that their office impacts um, communities and where um, the eight candidates stand on on a range of these issues. So that as, as Carl mentioned. Um, Whoever does end up in office, we have, you know, a nice list of, of things that they said that they would do, um, and then can, you know, shift into into in, ensuring that they keep those promises. And then, you know, even beyond that, what can we do to keep pushing them to do more than even what they said that they would?
0: Yep. Well. Thank you so much, Zoe. We're going to leave it there. Um, The Voter Guide will be out in the next couple of weeks. Um, And thank you for listening to us. To learn more about BCBF, you can follow us on social media or sign up for our newsletter at brooklynbailfund.org. If you sign up for our newsletter, you'll be amongst the first to receive a copy of our Manhattan DA voter guide, as well as information on other campaigns and projects that we're supporting, that our partners are supporting, um, and so forth. Um, But um, thanks again, Zoe. And until next time, we are out.